right, I would like to introduce our panelists. Dr. James Anderson, MD. He graduated from University School, University of Virginia School of Medicine in 1978. He's a Family and Emergency Medical Medicine Board certified. Dr. Anderson served in the U.S. Army Medical Reserves from 2002 until he was honorably discharged as colonel in 2012 at the mandatory retirement age of 60. During his service, Dr. Anderson did five active duty, four months deployments, including two in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. Dr. Anderson retired after 24 years as associate clinical professor with the Department of Family Practice at MCV, during which he trained more than 200 family medic medicine physicians. Concurrently, he also served as associate director of the Chesterfield Family Practice until 2018. Dr. Anderson has earned many professional awards throughout his career, including outstanding teacher and high evaluation awards by the VCU School of Medicine. <laughs> Dr. Anderson travels yearly to Uganda, where he serves as the director of Peter's Heart, a nonprofit that works with kids in Kampala who are at risk of harm and exploitation. He's also the chairman of the Richmond Christian and Med Medical and Dental Association, and most importantly, he's a devoted husband, father of four adult children, and grandfather of nine. He's also the only male here. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Tina Ramirez, right here, um, is an international human rights uh, expert. You didn't know that. <laughs> Founder and president of Hardwired Global, a nonprofit organization that specializes in human rights education and training to promote peace and pluralism worldwide. Tina has more than 20 years of experience as an educator, policy advisor, and expert on international human rights and religious freedom. She worked in more than 30 countries and travels regularly to the Middle East and Africa. Tina has spoken before the United Nations and the African Union and testified before the US Congress. Tina's educational programs, which have been published in several journals, have provided significant evidence of successful methods to help children overcome hate and intolerance, build resiliency against extremist thinking, reduce violent responses towards minority groups, and improve treatment of women and girls. Tina is the author of Iraq, Hope in the Midst of Darkness, a contributing editor, author of Human Rights in the United States, a dictionary and documents, and author, editor of Human Rights, Great Events from History. Previously, Tina served as a foreign policy advisor to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and the U.S. Congress, where she founded the Bipartisan International Freedom Caucus. Tina is the former director of government relations and international programs at Beckett Law. She also holds a certificate from the Inter International Institute for Human Rights in Strasbourg, France. She now lives in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, with her daughter, Abigail. Dr. Sheila Fury um, is a psychiatry, psychiatry board certified. She's been practicing as a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Richmond for over 20 years. Dr. Fury has served as an expert witness in child abuse cases and works to empower patients who have experienced abuse, neglect, or crime. Dr. Fury also treats patients who suffer opioid addiction and was named a Richmond Top Doc in 2020. In addition to her private practice, she teaches neuroplasticity exercises to children and adults with learning disabilities or cognitive challenges. Dr. Fury is the president of Virginia Medical Freedom Alliance, 
advocating for restoring the integrity of doctor-patient relationship, the fundamental maxim, first do no harm, and true informed consent. Dr. Few is a devoted wife and mother and dedicates much of her time to her community. Sarah Higdon, uh, host of Transform to Freedom podcast and many other things. Um, Sarah is the founder and CEO of Steubens LTD, a host of Transform to Freedom podcast. In 2012, Sarah joined the United States Army and served as a logistics officer for over seven years. Sarah served in the 101st and 82nd Divisions and was awarded a Bronze Star after deployment to Afghanistan. In 2017, Sarah was honorably discharged as captain and rejoined the civilian workforce as a supply chain manager in the pharmaceutical industry. Around the same time, Sarah was diagnosed with gender dysphoria and began medical transitioning in 2019. In 2018, Sarah identified a need to contribute beyond military service and founded Steubens LTD, a venture that raises funds for charities via online retail. In March 2020, Sarah became increasingly frustrated with the cultural narrative being overtaken by Marxist rhetoric and its adjacent queer, gender and queer ideology and launched the Transform to Freedom podcast to amplify the voices of freedom-loving transsexuals and to change the perception that trans persons are a progressive monolith. As a, as a freedom-loving transsexual with military experience, Sarah creates content that deals with politics and culture, typically responding to current events, especially when they relate to trans issues. Sarah has interviews politicians and people, public figures who are involved in the sphere uh, and human trafficking survivors. Sarah aims to provide thoughtful insight that is severely lacking in modern discourse. Sarah was a regular guest on KWOS Morning Show with Austin Peterson and has been a guest on a number of podcasts, including the Blaze TV Slightly Offensive, the Christy Mayer Podcast, and Deprogrammed with Carrie Smith. Sarah has also published op-eds in Human Events and the Libertarian Republic and was a guest speaker at Freedom Fest 2022. If it's okay with everyone else, I have a bunch of questions that um, people have sent me beforehand and I have and other people on our team have. And then we also collected questions from the audience that we'll, Stephen will ask um, after I'm finished. Um, Dr. Anderson, how about how many children have you treated over the years as a family practitioner? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's I've probably seen 150,000 patients over 40 years, so 10,000, 20,000, I don't know. It's just they come in the office or the emergency room. Um, I think I'm pretty loud for everyone to hear me, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so we don't need to be switching. Um, how many of them, if you remember, um, had gender dysphoria? I've never had one come with, to me with gender dysphoria. Uh, Tina, trans activists say that trans rights are human rights. What do you say to that as a human rights expert? Okay, so I know that most people don't know that side of my career, my life, and obviously as a strong conservative, I work in a very liberal field, the field of international human rights. But within the field of human rights, there are no, there's no legal documentation that recognizes trans rights as human rights. 
So within the body of international human rights law, there are human rights, and every person, whether they're, whatever they are, whatever their sexual orientation is, are human people and have human rights. But there's no specific human right as a trans right, and I think that's really important for people to understand in an extremely liberal field that no one recognizes that. Thank you. Dr. Fury, what do you think the role of the psychiatrist is when a patient comes and tells you they are trans? Adolescent and, um, yeah, psychiatrist. One of the, the chief job is to understand why they are presenting with this particular problem and to understand what brought them into my office. So it can be a very complicated process. And you have to understand what is the fundamental development of the child, what is their cognitive age. So even though they may be older, they may be cognitively limited. What is their experience? So what is their sexual experience been? And for many children who have experienced abuse or neglect, there may be significant confusion about how they identify sexually. And so that has to be a starting ground of how we approach any issue sexually. And it's a process. It is not simply affirming what the person says. And in fact, it should take months, if not years, to fully understand all of the feelings and thoughts that that child is experiencing. And as a psychiatrist, to, do, to simply affirm what they are saying to me as the truth all right, is to do disservice to that child and, in fact, do harm to them. And I just realized I forgot that I was going to give them, each of them a couple of minutes to introduce themselves and why they're here, but let's finish the first round of questions and then go back to that and then go back to questions. That's because I'm nervous, so forgive me. <laughs> Sarah, are you female? <laughs> no. No, and I'll answer the question of the day as well, you know, what is a woman? And I would say that's an adult human female. Um, I think it's important to make this distinction because, you know, I'm a person, I believe that trans women are trans women. Um, it's not, I'm not ashamed to say that. I was born male. I thought it, I, you know, I have gender dysphoria. And I thought, you know, and I, and I believe that transitioning has made me live my life a little bit more comfortably into the way that I feel about things. But and it kind of takes you to the point where saying trans women are women erases women. But what people don't understand is, from my perspective, it also erases the struggles that trans women also go through. See, I don't know what it's like to grow up a female. I don't know what it's like to go through puberty as a girl. I don't know what it's like to go through that. But at the same time, most people don't, I mean, you don't, don't know what it's like to struggle with gender identity and then to go through the process that it takes to transition to appear, maybe appear to society as a, as a woman. Um, and so I think we can have this common understanding, or this common understanding that Trans women are simply males with gender dysphoria who want to present and live in society as a woman. It doesn't mean I'm a woman. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing in common society today. All right. Thank you. And now we'll go back to the original plan. Of, uh, we'll just go in order and let you each introduce yourself and why you're here. <laughs> Sorry. 
me this is that two to three minute. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, we have been dealing with this transgender issue in the medical world for quite a while now. If just like gravity is a physical reality, so sex, male and female, is a biologic reality. To deny that causes catastrophic results. You as an individual, your average number of cells is 37 and a half trillion cells. Now every one of those 37 and a half trillion cells has a genetic code to tell it what its function is as well as what the sex of the individual is. There are 23 pairs of chromosomes, and one pair in every one of those 37 trillion cells in an individual is either XX or XY. That's a biologic reality. We cannot change that. That defines a male, and that defines a female that chromosome genetic code. Now, Virginia's General Assembly does not believe that. They say gender is non-biologic uh, reality. You can choose it. So they've put in four laws that are really detrimental in the medical world. One law says if I cannot use anything that would suggest that they should change back to their gender at birth or their sex at birth. Now again, gender is, is a floating term, but the sex at birth is a reality that I deal with. I'm my 42 years. So conversion therapy is illegal for healthcare professionals. The insurance companies have been mandated to pay for hormone blockers as well as for gender affirming surgery. So the economics hurdle is taken away. The Virginia Department of Education is mandated to create model policies for the school boards across the state of Virginia on how to handle elementary kids and secondary school kids that are transgender. And then the last thing is there's no discrimination based on gender identity. So those laws really have teeth in them in the medical world that you can't work with people like we do in every other area to try to get them toward good health. There's no medical evidence to support the treatment of gender dysphoria with delaying puberty hormones and or gender affirming surgery. There's no medical evidence for that. The side effects are severe and significant and irreversible, many of them. Sterility, loss of sexual function, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, main, brain development, as well as body development. And your hormones play a role in your life, your whole life. Now, because of the poor long-term results of these therapies, many nations are starting to pull back. England, Finland, Sweden, Australia and New Zealand have now restricted the, or in the process of restriction puberty blocking agents as well as gender affirming surgery 
and adopting a waiting-and-see attitude do no harm. And that shows the conversion back to the birth sex after puberty between 65 and 95 percent. So the wait-and-see is the becoming the standard or moving toward the de desired treatment in these nations that have not at all seen the success that was promised. Now, the child's brain development doesn't, the brain development isn't complete until you're about 25 to 31, 32. So it's absolutely uh, inconsistent with medical knowledge to allow young children to make life-determining decisions. The suicide rate has been used to validate these treatments, but as said in the movie, when you look at the long-term studies, it has not decreased. In some studies, it's doubled. So we just got to look at the history, the why, the medical knowledge, and just say it's been a horrible social experiment on the children and what the governor of Texas said and what was said on the movie. It is child abuse, and we need to be on that hill to protect them. Thank you. All right, so again, my name is Sarah Higdon. Um, I am the trans person on this panel. I'm also a content creator, um, and so, yeah, I felt gender dysphoria. So I felt something was different about me when I was about four years old. Um, I knew I was a boy, but I just felt like something was different. I was attracted to things that were not typical of boys. Um, you know, I tried to dress on for the first time when I was four years old. I knew that was, that was different. Um, and that kind of pervased all the way through, you know, my years until, you know, I got out of the army and began exploring who I was um, in later in life. And I think the one thing that I think most people, and I hear the most often is, most people don't care what people do as adults, and I agree with this. Um, I'm very libertarian, and I, I think that adults can do what they want, but we can't, you know, children cannot consent to these treatments. And so when I started seeing this back in about 2016, 2017, um, even, then getting kicked out of Reddit groups for saying that, you know, what we call them, transgenders exist. Um, and when the, you know, just for saying transgenders exist, I got kicked out of these groups. But what I said is when they, they exist and when the detransition rate skyrockets, it's going to hurt actual trans people. And that's what we're seeing today. The detransition rate is going up. And so now you're seeing the op, you know, equal and opposite reaction is to try to ban all medical procedures for even adults, which I've seen some adults, people push for adults, but it's not as pervasive. Um, so I started getting involved, and um, it took me about a year to kind of gain traction, um, but in the last year, I've done a whole lot of great stuff, like she said, speaking at Freedom Fest. Um, I'm speaking here with you, you guys now. Um, I also spoke on Saturday at the No Left Turn uh, Georgia event. Um, and so getting out here and doing this is what I want to do. And I'm also part of that, you guys may have heard of the hate group, um, Gays Against Groomers. 
So I'm a contributor to Gays Against Groomers as well, and Jamie, the founder, is a good friend of mine, and we just launched this week Trans Against Groomers for the same reason, because we're against... Because we're against the, you know, mutilation, medicalization, indoctrination of children, which we should all be against those things, but we're called... You know, they, they out themselves when they say that Gays Against Groomers is an anti-trans group now because it's them that's, per, per, you know, saying that, they, that we are, they're, they're the ones that are conflating the two together and basically being transphobic when they say that we are an anti-trans hate group. It makes no sense. And so, um, but I, I will also say I'm also a board member of the Georgia Log Cabin Republicans and I'm a brand ambassador for Outspoken USA, which is kind of the media wing for um, Log Cabin Republicans. So, um, and I'm, so yeah, Log Cabin Republicans is just the LGBT organization that, um, that supports Republican candidates. And they were the first to kind of show that um, you know, gay people and trans people alike, the LGBT without the Q is not a monolith. And we support, and a lot of, you know, gay people are traditional people that support traditional values, just like most conservatives now. And so that's why we're out here now speaking as a group to show that we're not this monolith. And we're standing with all of you guys in this room to, to show that as well. I think I got in this mainly as a person, it's a complicated story. I have two daughters. And I grew up with six brothers. So I know what a woman is. Um, I knew that we were different very early. I knew that when I was in the fifth grade and I had two younger brothers, they were both stronger than me. That, and they, obviously I hadn't hit puberty and they hadn't had, hit puberty. But the distortion that we, distorted psychological picture that we are sending to our children is horrific and terrifying. We are sexualizing our children. And, you know, out of their innocence in preschool, in kindergarten, in first grade, that we're presenting them with sexualized material that is totally inappropriate. And had this been, you know, 10 years ago when I was testifying in sexual abuse cases, these people would be in jail. And yet now we're giving them awards. I look at the female athletes and that they're not allowed to stand, they're not allowed to speak, their voices as women are being taken away because of some mythological, you know, there's no other way to describe it, this fantasy of, you know, the left of what a woman is and that it can be a fluid thing. And the circular reasoning that you saw in this film. You know, if you're in my office and you present me with consistent circular thinking, I call you psychotic. <laughs> and that's what it is. 
It is a delusion that is killing our children, and it must stop. So I was in Iraq two months ago. That's my day job. That's where I go for work. And I was working with children in Mosul that were brainwashed by ISIS to be terrorists. And when ISIS was finally defeated in northern Iraq, um, the children the, from the Christian and Yazidi families started going back into those areas to, um, you know, rebuild their communities. And the problem was is that they were going back into communities with children that had been taught to hate and kill them because of their religion. And so in those environments, we could have left those children to themselves, but for no fault of their own, they were brainwashed to hate and kill. And so uh, my organization goes in and retrains teachers how to help these children value the religious freedom and the dignity of others so that they don't kill each other. When I come home to America and I see um, my daughter's seven years old in second grade, that our own public schools and our society and culture and our legislators are allowing our children to be indoctrinated in schools, not just in Marxism, which we've been seeing with critical race theory and we've been you know, outspoken about that, but um, in ideas that would not only undermine their parents' values, but cause harm to the children, irreparable harm. You can understand why I'm concerned especially after spending the last 20 years fighting for human rights all over the world for people that had their dignity ripped from them. And now we here in our society are literally watching as schools take for granted the dignity of our children, our children. In international human rights, which I've been involved in, I wrote an encyclopedia of human rights, which is extremely boring. None of you will ever want to read it. But in that, I have defended what human rights are. Human rights are protection of the dignity of the individual. They're, they're protection of the dignity of the individual from the power of government. Let me be clear. These are standards that everyone in the world recognizes post-Holocaust that people should have because governments should not interfere in the dignity of an individual. And we as people need protection from our government. And now more than ever, sadly, in our public schools, our children need protection from the government. So when these things started coming out a couple of years ago, given the work that I do around the world, I had to speak up. Because knowing what I know, what happens, and how children can be so easily influenced and how vulnerable they are, I didn't want my daughter's innocence stolen from her. I don't think any of us here want our child's innocence stolen from them. I couldn't fight for the rights of women if I didn't know what a woman was. How in the human rights world can we fight for the rights of children, of women, of any group if we didn't know what those human rights are, if we didn't know how to define what a woman is? And what's happening is undermining the value of a woman in society, of a female child in society. Those women and children that I work with all over the world need special protection because of the things that affect them. The women in Iraq that I met who had their children ripped from their arms by ISIS need special protection because they weren't protected. And that's why I'm here, because I believe that they deserve that protection. That is their human right. 
We have parents, we have rights as parents, but society wants to trump our rights with their self-perception of whatever they want to consider a right, and that is not a human right. And if we want to be intellectually honest, we have to stand up for what true human rights are and what they are not. Because definitions do matter. Truth does matter, as I said in the film. So that's why I'm here today. Thank you. All right, and back to questions now. Uh, Dr. Anderson, what were puberty blockers desi originally designed to you to do and typically, how long were they designed to be used for? I don't have a good, I've never used them, so <laughs> uh, never would. But I think they came in with just this whole social focus of trying to postpone, because we do use a lot of hormone therapy, both in adults and cancer treatment, things like that. So I think it's just a rollover there. Like he said, the Lupron, the Lupron is a testosterone blocker that came in for prostate cancer. So we, we have a lot of experience, but as far as coming in for gender dysphoria, I think it just kind of rolled into that arena. I don't think they're ever designed for puberty postponement. These drugs came in otherwise. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. So, yeah, puberty blockers have a lot of uses in the world, and one is t um, to um, chemically castrate sex offenders. Now, what, what people always leave out with this, though, is you do have to continuously take them. Um, to chemically castrate sex offenders, and usually what they do is um, a parole officer might give it to that, that person, like once a month when they meet with them. Um, they also use them for women who are going through in vitro fertilization um, to stop um, the, the, the full cycle so that the doctor can actually create a full cycle, so it's only like a couple weeks. And then when it started to become with children, it, it's usually for, like all the studies that they use for trans people are on children with precocious puberty, meaning that they start puberty at five or six years old, and they try to get them to a puberty age. Um, and so when they, even the new WPATH guidance, which came out last Friday, last week, um, it states that to use puberty blockers on children in key developmental years is still prescribed off-label because they don't have all the, the, uh, the data to show that they are completely safe and fully reversible, as they say. In the, new, in the new WPATH guidance, and if you don't know, WPATH stands for the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, and they are the ones that give all the recommendations to doctors um, on how to treat trans people. Um, and so they actually caution and say one reason to maybe start HRT, hormone, re hormone replacement therapy, at an earlier age is to, to prevent uh, bone density issues. So that's one thing, one area where they completely say it's not reversible. And then they talk about advising their patients on cognitive ability or, or reduced cognitive function. So there's two. And then in the very last section, it actually states that well, we don't really know what the long-term effects of puberty blockers on children are. And so they are, I think they, if you read the new WPATH guidance, they actually set up 
for a lot of lawsuits because they've been telling these people this, and like they said, they've been experimenting on these children. One of the dangers of these is you can fuse the child's bones in a pre-adolescent state. So there's a window of time when the bones will, the long bones of the body will fuse. And so if those fuse, that child will remain small for the rest of their lifetime. And there are significant consequences for that. Yep. <laughs> Actually, I just remembered. Okay, so you guys saw Marcy Bowers in the movie. Uh, Marcy Bowers is now the president-elect, or maybe now the president of WPATH. Um, and one thing that's different, because I don't know when this film was, when this was filmed. So she recently came out um, last fall talking about um, penile tissue growth. Puberty blockers stop that. And so what they do is it creates, if, even if they go on to have surgery at age of 18, there is not enough tissue to create a neo-vagina. And so they have to graft from elsewhere on the body. Anytime you graft from elsewhere on the body, it causes complications. Uh, Marcy Bowers is also a Jazz Jennings surgeon, and she has had multi a multitude of complications. As well, she stated in a video about two months ago that out of 100% of the patients that they actually blocked puberty at, before Tanner stage two, which is right before puberty, 100% of those children, as an adult, are never able to orgasm. So they are stealing sexual satisfaction from these kids as well. Um, can it wait? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. That's a good question. Um, so I think a lot of the people that are so, the activists and the people that are so outspoken, this is something that they've grabbed onto in order to fit in somewhere into society. And so that is why it's the first thing on their mind, is the, it's, it is their identity, it's their entire identity. Usually, I mean, I speak out about this stuff and most transsexuals that I know, and transsexuals are generally the ones that we've always known of forever and ever that transition later in life. Um, and most transsexuals that I know just want to go stealth and be who they are and never talk about it again. Um, and I agree with that. Like for me, I think if I wasn't doing this work, I would just be going stealth and not really talking about it. It would not be a factor in my daily life, um, but because of the work I do that it is. But usually even when I introduce myself, it's the last thing I mention. And I just, I just so happen to be trans, which I actually agree with the way that Marcy put it in the movie is, I present as a woman with a trans history. I think that's a decent way to say it um, because, like I said, I'm not a woman, but because I have a trans background. And I think I can get what she's getting at there as well. But it's, 
it is a difference in where you fit and where you belong. And then when it becomes your entire identity and you're just looking for an identity, that's the way they view the world is everybody is against their identity. So they're, they're against their entire self. If you misgender me, I don't really care. It's, it's not my entire being. I really don't care what you think. And so I'm just gonna go on and live my life the way I see fit. And so that's the way I feel about it. But that's not how these activists and the leftists view things. Did that answer your question? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think Sarah can speak for all trans people, right? able actually to shed some light um, I am Jewish and when people ask me what, what what do you mean like you're Jewish I will describe it as being Jewish it's not just a religion it's not just a culture um, it's also happen to also be Israeli and American so it's also part of my Jewish identity um, so I would say being Jewish is all-encompassing but I'm at the same time I'm Jewish I am a woman I'm a mother I'm a wife, I'm a friend, uh, so I'm a professional, so I'm many things, and so being Jewish is all-encompassing, but at the same time, it's just part of my identity. speaking at is there's a biological truth so there's a biological truth that you're a male or you're a female okay that's fact all right and what is experienced a gender dysphoria okay so for the minority of people who have a gender dysphoria it's understanding what that dysphoria is and the circumstances of that it doesn't and I think what you're saying, Sarah, is it doesn't make you a female, okay? So you're putting on, you're using, you're living a lifestyle that makes you comfortable 
but it's responding to an internal distress that you have. And that where we have to be cautious is understanding that internal distress and what the source of that distress is and how that can be addressed in our, in our community, in our individual lives. And that the answer, and, and, I, and I think Sarah would agree with me, just simply trying to live the life of a woman doesn't make you a woman and doesn't make you have the feelings and internal mechanisms of being a woman. And that this concept, what we are fed is that because I have made this step by many of I'm a woman, I have all the feelings, thoughts, etc., of being a woman, even though I'm a biological male, is a falsehood. That that is what we are made to believe is true. And so it creates an ongoing conflict. And that it's helpful to, and many of the, I have treated transgendered patients. And they will all acknowledge that they are biologically men. And that there was significant things that happened in their life that made them to have an external presentation as a woman. But that conflict never goes away. And so there's the, the assumption that I can change my external appearance and that will end the discomfort or the internal uh, conflict does not occur. And that's why when you, particularly when you have children who have this conflict, they don't even have the cognitive capacity and I think this is really critical. They don't have the cognitive capacity to sort through all of these issues. And yet we're affirming something that is not cognitively possible for them to do. Yeah, go ahead. Just, Brian. Let me just respond to something else the gentleman said, Brian, and then we'll go, I'll have Sheila answer. To your point about feelings, because I think that we're in this problem, this situation, because we have legislators making bad laws about things based on really chaotic subjectivism, the idea that we can make laws based on feelings. And just because someone's offended, we then need to make a law so that they're not offended. All right, there's no human right to not be offended. Let's be very clear, there's a human right to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion and conscience, and that includes your conscientious objection to use pronouns that you don't agree with, to state that you think something is wrong, um, and, and that we need to understand that human rights and our constitutional rights trump whatever our state legislature is screwing up with our kids. It trumps that. And you need to remember that your parental rights, your child's rights, 
all of those rights that you have are protected above and beyond whatever the, the, the legislators are screwing up. You cannot make laws based on feelings. There is a reason for that because they are subjective, they change. When you're looking at any kind of case of discrimination, you have to base the legal assessment of that case based on objective and reasonable distinctions that can be permitted. We have distinctions all across society. And, and those were distinctions, those were evaluating these distinctions. Correct. There is a process for this. And unfortunately, that's not what's happening in our societal debate. We are literally being moved by feelings. And, that, and that's going to only create chaos legally for us. Um, so, I mean, I can share more about this, but let me just move on. So it's gender dysphoria versus well, contagion. Contagion. So, like, okay. One out of X, uh, like the, the rate of true gender dysphoria is one out of X, whatever the number is. But you're seeing a much larger number now than the one out of X. How does a person distinguish between the one out of 10,000 or 100,000 and the other instances? And that leads to my next question. Okay. So children with or adults who have gender dysphoria, it starts very early, and there's conflict, and you look at the when it began and what are the circumstances that it began in, all right? Versus when you have high school students, college students who have no history of any gender identity issues, but because of you know, adolescents, because of other things, they get self-identify with a group and then become, then come home and say, you know, I'm now, you know, the opposite gender. And when you look at that, there's a phenomenon called contagion, and that's what many of these, particularly girls, are, are experiencing. So there's a 4,000% increase and girls wanting to transition to boys. And much of that is all contagion. All right, the next question is kind of led into this, Dr. Fury. Um, is it ever appropriate, unless it's a case of, you know, there's um, a history of violence in the student's family, or a very strong suspicion of violence or you know, abuse, is it, uh, other than those cases where I know teachers and school staff are, they have protocols they have to follow with Child Protective Services, other than those exceptions, is it ever appropriate for schools to protect the trans identity of a student from the parents? No. And in fact, pull your kids from public school, private schools, whatever. Um, they're all dangerous. Uh, they are. The private schools as well as the public schools are very dangerous because they want to enforce this ideology in their children. And the risk for the children is significant. And every child, you have to think about your rebellious periods in high school or even elementary school. You go through rebellious times, but as parents, you are the adult. You make decisions based on the evidence and morality. And this is something that we don't allow our children to make lifelong decisions based on a temporary feeling. And that's a temporary feeling. And even if it persists for years, it's a temporary feeling. 
Kids go through difficult times, and we support them as parents. And at no time should the child be removed from the parents who have the child's best interest at heart. Sorry, I just, I want to add to this because this whole movement often uses human rights to justify it. You hear this all the time, right? And so I do think it's really important that you understand that within, there's a, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and even within the Convention on the Rights of the Child in international law, the parents' rights always trump whatever the child wants or feels like they need. It is always predicated on the parents' rights. So that doesn't even go away even in the most liberal space of international human rights law. And I think that's important for parents here because when you're looking at schools, you always have the right as a parent to oversee the best interest of your child. There's this thing called the evolving capacity of the child within the international human rights system for children. Children evolve, as, as Dr. Anderson said, until they're 31. And so protecting those best interests of the child is protecting their evolving capacity to sexually reproduce, to have, to have a family, to have all of those benefits of every other human being in society, and to cut them off arbitrarily actually infringes on the safety and the security and the best interests of the child. So there's no justification, and even in international human rights law, for superseding the parents' rights to the, the welfare of their child to not be transitioned, to not be engaged in that way, to, um, to be removed from those decisions. There's no human right to any of that. In fact, it is an absolute violation of the rights of you as parents to protect your children because the first line of defense, as they said in the video, is always the parent. The parent is always the one that has the best interest of the child at heart. And so, it, I mean, we have to assert those rights even within our domestic legislative system because they clearly don't get in. If they're gonna use that language against us and throw it right back at them and say, well, actually, you're wrong. Thank you. Um, thank you, Tina. If you can provide, one second, if you can um, later provide me so I can share with everyone the resources where to find that, that would be great. I think parents would really appreciate that. Yes? Yes. Honestly, I've never seen any of the studies that show the increases there. Um, I knew a little bit that there could be those risks when I transitioned, so I thought it was worth it. Um, but um, a lot of the detransitioners that are coming out, and I'm having, I have a piece that's coming out either today or tomorrow, either tonight or tomorrow, in Human Events um, that is, talks about why detransitioners' voices are so important. And this is why, is because detransitioners give the other side of the story. I don't know how you have you know, informed consent when you are silencing the, those that give probably the biggest testimonies on the actual, um, yeah, the actual complications of the surgeries and stuff like that. That's, that's what we're seeing right now, is those people being silenced. Um, personally, Doctors should be providing this information. 
Um, it's also 2022 and we have the internet and all this stuff is out there. So anybody who is looking at going through this procedure, any of these procedures, the answers are at their fingertips, even if doctors are not providing them. Um, it, do you trust one person 100% of the time? If you don't, tr I don't trust my doctors. I don't trust anybody 100% of the time. So I'm going to do my own research now. To that same point, no, children cannot consent to puberty blockers. They cannot consent to this because they don't have the cognitive ability to be, even be able to understand those repercussions five to six years down the road. Um, I think there are lots of medical sites with actual medical information on the internet, and I assume that's what you're referring to. And I think what Sarah is saying is that even though she went through this process, and she asked those questions of her physicians, she still, in addition, did her own research to come up with an adult decision about her life-altering choices. But children are absolutely not able to consent to those. Uh, Dr. Anderson, how is the medical community being um, how, as a medical person, how is the medical community being censored um, into going along with this, um, what I call transdemic, among children? Well, in the last two or three years, we've gone to the Richmond Academy of Medicine, we've gone to the Medical Society of Virginia, we've gone to the hospital systems in Richmond, the Medical College of Virginia at MCV, um, and all have refused to touch it. The door has, we've, we've gone to the legislators and that door has been shut until Governor Yonkin um, got elected. But the medical world has totally advocated any leadership in this arena in Richmond. And so this is, the, I think the parents is the only one to really work with. We went to the billboard companies and said, can we put up billboards to say there's no medical evidence? And the billboard companies said, we can't touch it. And we went to radio stations. They said, we can't touch it. So really, all dissenting uh, voice has been shut down by the media. And it's really, you know, to watch this breakdown of trust and leadership in the medical community is beyond my comprehension. But we've knocked on every door we know in the medical world, and we've gotten total, uh, we're not going to go there. Some of our folks at MCV, We've got some folks that uh, are in leadership down there and they won't come forward because they'll know they'll lose their job. And if, if we had a strong platform to speak, they would come forward. But you know, like I said, the doors have been shut and our campus director at MCB lost his job because he was teaching the students how to push back against this ideology on an academic way. And so uh, we saw that coming a year and a half before it happened because they, you know, one step at a time, began to isolate our campus director 
for the Christian Medical and Dental Society there. And, but it's just been a very, pro, you know, steady movement to shut down any dissenting voice. And the doors have been shut from that. Yeah, actually, so Deborah saw you guys saw her in the video as well. She was one of the most, one of the world's own uh, sexologists, and she even talked about it. She was forced out of academia, and so they're creating these uh, like these cults. So if you like everybody in academia that's preaching this stuff, you can't even dissent from that opinion, like she said. Um, and she it was when she wrote her book End of Gender, which I would recommend everybody reading, which it's very informative. Um, but that's what happened to her, and that's why she's out here even telling her story on her podcast and everything like that as well. Good evening. Sorry, I was just supposed to be an attendee. This is unexpected. <laughs> My name's Stephen Rosel. I am a man. Uh, for Sarah, I'd like actually to ask you this one. Um, the argument against uh, gender ideology is not just being fought on the right. In fact, radical feminists were some of the first and most uh, bold to speak out. How do we better organize people from across the political spectrum to fight this evil, protect our kids? I know you already mentioned about the um, gays against groomers and stuff like that, but is there a way that we can make friends with unlikely bedfellows to help combat this? Yeah, I think we can work with anybody who has a common goal with us. Um, and I'll just give a little bit of an example. So I mentioned it earlier, I'm a libertarian, and Spike Cohen worked with Black Lives Matters last year to work on um, criminal justice reform. Even though we don't agree on 90% of the stuff because they are Marxist, um, and, and we believe in individual liberty, you can always work with people that agree on one issue and, and, and agree to disagree on the other issues. That's how we used to get stuff done, you know? Um, as well, um, like, like you said, with early feminists, they've been fighting this fight for a long time. People don't realize, so the term TERF, which is trans-exclusive radical feminist, that's why that you hear that term, is because it's typically third-wave feminists who don't want to go along with this fourth-wave feminist ideology that changes from sex to you know, gender identity. And so they are pushing back on it. People like J.K. Rowling are a prime example. Um, and this is one of the issues I actually have a little bit with Matt Walsh, is because recently J he told J.K. Rowling that she needs to sit down and let the men handle this. Um, and so I don't think that's the right strategy because I appreciate everything that J.K. Rowling's doing, standing up and fighting back against this gender ideology. And I really think it's 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 you know trans women left and right because we have we are like Gays Against Groomers, a non-political organization. We have people on the left that come to us like I agree with what you guys are doing all the time. I have so many friends. One of my friends just left the left last year. She used to be a political meme. Uh, artists for the left and she just saw what was going on so there's always those ends that we can you know help to bring people to our side um, most people I think once you once they realize that they can speak out about this and they're not going to get canceled they start to form groups and as we get bigger and bigger those people will start to open their eyes as well to where this will become a non-issue everybody across the political spectrum will believe it but you need those people that are in those circles to also start preaching it as well. So if you push them out of the movement, then 
you're not going to be able to just do it on your own. You have to win hearts and minds, and something that we've done, you know, around we've tried to do around the world is win hearts and minds of the people that don't necessarily know us, don't necessarily agree with us, because we don't necessarily, you know, we may not speak well on other issues, but at least on some issues, we can definitely work together on it. And this is one of those issues. I think, like, I think somebody said earlier, it's common sense. And when you when you look at common sense and you look at how we can agree to disagree on other things and, and we can agree that this is harmful to children. I mean, I think this is where the fight is gone. I'm actually appreciative that this is where the fight has gone. It's like, let's focus on the children. Because some of you in this room might not agree with how I live my life, but let's focus on the children. And I think that's where we start and I think that's where most people want to, don't want to harm children. I think that's the, where the fight starts. Thanks, sir. Oh, I don't know if anybody's seen it. There's been uh, the Federalist has reported on it and Vanderbilt Health. Um, the, the hospital system has been out there selling transgender surgeries, yada, yada, yada. Um, do we need a law to protect parents' rights um, as the primary decision makers for caregivers uh, for children under the age of 18? Um, because a lot of people are calling for it to be unilaterally at 13. I mean, I'm a big proponent of we don't need more laws. We need to, we, I mean, everything we have is in the Constitution, you know. We, we already have enough there. We just need to respect what's in the Constitution. So, uh, no, I don't think we think need anything new. We just, we unfortunately need to educate our lawmakers and the people making these crazy policies that they're unconstitutional. And then we need to challenge them legally. Uh, you know, there there are young people that have been transitioned that are going to be starting to file malpractice lawsuits and all of these things. There are parents that can be filing lawsuits. Uh, you know, and it's unfortunate what's happening in Canada. Canada has a very liberal system. But we, you know, we should fight back and we should file lawsuits and protect our rights. But our parent rights are there. Uh, you know. Thank you. Along those same lines, we have to get, take control of our school boards we need to take control of the Board of Medicine. All of the medical boards, Board of Nursing, Board of Pharmacy, all of those have citizens' positions on them. We need to get into all of those. We need to hold all of those boards accountable. Yes. And we should rescind the laws that the Democrats passed a couple years ago that allowed for this crazy stuff. So those are the things we should be doing, is rescinding all of them so our schools aren't confused anymore, and they know that they have the legal protection to act in the best interest of children once again. Well, I'm in private practice, so I do not, I'm not held accountable to an institution, first of all. And um, I'm held accountable to parents, all right, and to the child. And the biggest thing that I do is help them explore, and that nothing is a permanent right now, that we're not making permanent decisions, because they're too young to do that. So we explore the present, and where the conflicts are, and address each conflict one at a time. You have to take those matters into court, and that's pretty much your opposition is, oh, this is not sexual abuse, this is transgender instead. How would you? The court systems in Virginia are, 
in terms of abuse are very difficult. And that it is often that I am testifying against very high-powered lawyers, and it's very difficult, and the children usually lose. That's the bottom line. Yeah, um, so I'm going to go back to a panel, again, I did with No Left Turn on Saturday uh, with detransitioner Chloe Cole, um, who was transitioned at 13, uh, had double mastectomy at 15, and then detransitioned at 16. Uh, she, w she stated on there that she was radicalized by Instagram. Um, her advice to parents, and I'm just going to reiterate her advice because I think it's the best advice, is give your kids a flip phone until until they're you know 16 17 18 take away the devices put the, put the computer in, in in a common room in the house like don't give your kids these devices because that you're absolutely right the online message boards are full of this stuff i was banned for speaking out against this on message boards um I think I'm about to get banned from a Facebook group by just simply being in this Facebook group, and it's supposed to be a, a support group for trans women. And so, just by being me. <laughs> but um, that's the only way you can really fight it. Know what's going on with your kids, know who your kids' friends are, and you know, checking up on the schools, because I think that's the biggest issue too, is these schools that are found hiding this stuff from parents um, and pushing this stuff um, onto children. Um, it's, it's, it's very pervasive. It's, it's very much grooming behavior when you're grooming kids to think in this ideology. And, and, and a lot of it comes from friend groups. Like you said, in Irreversible Damage, she, met, she talks to all these parents in there and says, and it's usually one, two, three, four people in a certain friend group of basically, I'm, I'm going to say that most of them are misfits in school, and so they find this friend group and they have a, a common cause. And then not, not only do they have a common identity, they have a common cause to fight the system. So it's almost like when I was in school and there was the goth kids, they find this counterculture that they can you know, fight the system and, and, and have a purpose. Um, but it really comes with who, who they're hanging out with and what they're, what they're gravitating towards. Absolutely. So you gotta just keep them away from, from that, and know who they're, and just know your kids the best as you can. Um, we do need to wrap up because it is very late. What I'm going to do is provide Tina's, Dr. Fury's, Sarah's, and Dr. Anderson's contact information, so you can ask if you have questions that are unanswered. You will be able to ask them. And we have two action items before you go. Should I just say it? All right. Go to the video website and make comments in favor of the new transgender policy because they are um, the, the the far left has actually has like I think they're using some sort of bot 
system to, they've already put in so many comments against it. We need to flood it with comments in favor of it because it's a very solid policy. And the second one is please run for school board, run for board of supervisors, run for house delegate, for house of delegates, run for sta state senate, run for whatever you can. And if you can't and you won't, please help us find someone who will. Thank you so much, everyone.